Let me uh, dismiss our kids downstairs. They can go down. Um, all right, they're making their way downstairs. While they're making their way downstairs really quick, i got to embarrass a few people. First, my mom and grandmother are here, sitting next to my wife. You can wave real quick. So, kind of a small world. My grandmother, who is my kid's great-grandmother, her bus driver when she was a little girl was Chico, actually. So... He retired after her kindergarten year, so. Um, also, I want to point out, uh, we have a former staff member from way back here today, Esther Ober, who was Esther Brown. Esther, can you wave real quick? Uh, I don't know if any of you would even remember Esther, because she worked here in like 2012. A few, okay, a few people. And her husband, Josiah, who was not her husband at the time, and then their little baby, Elijah, okay? So... Josiah has the craziest job ever. He travels around all over the country opening up new Chick-fil-A's. This is like church planting, but probably more important. And so we got to lay hands on him because the, uh, the evil Popeyes is nipping at their heels. So, all right. Um, making them sweat. All right. This morning we're starting the book of uh, Ephesians. We're in a series that's probably going to last almost an entire year on the church in Ephesus. And I'm not going to review this every week, but when we make shifts in the sermon series, we're going to uh, review this. So the church in Ephesus, there's a whole uh, two chapters in the book of Acts, chapters 18 and 19. They're ded dedicated to the church in Ephesus. The whole book of Ephesians is dedicated to Ephesus. Timothy in the New Testament was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, so 1st and 2nd Timothy are relevant. And then in the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's a letter to the church in Ephesus. So we're going to cover all of that. It's, we're going to touch on five books of the Bible as we do this series, so that's why it's going to take about a year. But today we're starting Ephesians. We spent a month in Acts 18 and 19. Today we're going to start Ephesians. This is going to take us a few months, and we'll do 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and then we'll probably spend two weeks on the letter to the church in Ephesus. If you pay attention, you're going to see themes that recur. So like the last month that we were in Acts, you saw like these uh, demonstrations of supernatural power with uh, the burning of magic scrolls and books and things like that. And you saw the casting out of demons and you saw that they uh, turned so many people to Jesus that the uh, Greek god uh, Diana or Artemis was no longer being worshipped the way she was. So you're going to see that in Acts. And then in Ephesus, you're going to see how they talk about spiritual warfare. And Paul instructs them about that. And then we're going to get to uh, First and Second Timothy and Revelation as well. So I have a question I need you to be answer, uh, honest about. Okay, The first service is either way more spiritual than I give them credit for or not honest at all. Do any of you ever have a hard time understanding the Bible? Raise your... Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Well, there's only like three people at nine o'clock, apparently. So, and I was one of them. Listen, when I read the Bible, I, I'm going to be honest, sometimes it's still hard to understand. And there's a couple reasons for that. But one of the reasons is there's a big gap between us and them. I mean, the Bible was written on a couple different continents by 40 different authors, even the most recent portions are still about 2,000 years old. Some of it's 3,500 years old. 
Okay? So you're talking, it's in different languages, different cultures. So it just makes it sometimes difficult to understand what you're reading because it's so separated from our current way of living. You know, I, I feel sometimes when I'm talking to my wife or my kids or even people from the church, we use language that is, it's not used anywhere in the rest of our culture. And it's extra language you have to learn just to understand the Bible. So, for instance, how many of you remember, <laughs> you guys know, uh, remember when Jeroboam was the king of Judah, but, uh, or sorry, Rehoboam was the king of Judah and Jeroboam was the king of Israel and he had a cult calf in Bethel and Dan. Remember that? No, you don't. I just threw you, yeah, that's not even a real story. No, it is a real story, but I just want to, I want to make you nervous this morning, okay? Listen, the Bible's hard to follow because it's full of strange names. It's full of strange places. Uh, it's hard to follow some of this stuff. Now, the book of Ephesians has none of that. There's no interesting names. There's no places you've never been. If you've ever wondered, what, what would a letter from Paul sound like if he wrote it today? In 2019 in Philadelphia, it would sound like Ephesians. Because this isn't written to address any specific situation. It's just theology. Okay? He, he's not like, when he wrote Galatians, he was addressing a specific situation where people were infiltrating the church and trying to convince people that they had to become Jewish before they could become Christian. So that's the way Galatians is written. 1 Corinthians, he wrote that because the church was full of sexual immorality and all sorts of divisions. So when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was dealing with that. He wasn't dealing with anything wrong when he wrote Ephesians. He was just saying, hey, here's some good news. And so as we read Ephesians, you're going to find that none of this is situational. This applies today exactly the same way it applied 2,000 years ago. You don't need to um, put yourself in an imaginary context to understand this. This is pretty straightforward. One of the reasons that so many people love Ephesians is because of that. It's just straightforward stuff. Uh, you don't need to have an advanced degree to understand Ephesians. This is essential, basic, New Testament spirituality, gospel stuff. So... The book of Ephesians illustrates what it's like to live out the gospel in a challenging cosmopolitan marketplace. That's uh, a quote from Ray Backey. Uh, he is an expert in urban ministry. Ephesians illustrate what it's like to live the gospel out in a challenging cosmopolitan marketplace. That's us. We live in a challenging cosmopolitan or diverse area. This book is for us, and this is going to help us understand how we live and work uh, now in Philly in 2019. So, I want to give you a brief outline of Ephesians. It's pretty simple. Ephesians is only six chapters, and it's split directly in half. Okay, so if you go, if you flip in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that's the middle of the book. And the first word, in most translations, is the word, therefore... So whenever you come across the word therefore in the Bible, you want to take what precedes it and connect it with what follows it. Okay? So if I call my, my kids school and I'll say, my kids are sick today, therefore they won't be in school. I've given them the reasoning and then also the practical application of the reasoning. Does that make sense? Okay, so the first three chapters of Ephesians is all reasoning. 
It's all theology. It's all like a philosophy. It's, it's what happens to a Christian when they become a Christian. Okay, so it's all identity, position, and belief. The second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, is activity, practice, and behavior. So the first half tells you who you are, and the second half tells you, therefore, act like this. Does that make sense? It's, it's important that we understand why Paul would structure it that way, because a lot of times we skip chapters 1 through 3 and go straight to the behavior of chapters 4 through 6. And when people come to Jesus or they come to church, we want them to immediately act like this, behave like this, but we don't tell them why. You know what I mean? We don't tell them that they are a new creation in Christ. We just expect them to know that and act like it. We don't tell them that they've been redeemed, that they've been forgiven. We want to go straight to behavior without telling them about who they are in Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for them. So you can't cut straight to behavior uh, because then you create this kind of shallow, guilt-induced religion that really doesn't accomplish anything, frankly. The guilt-induced stuff only lasts so long, and it always back backfires. Now, I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, actually, let me back up. When we get to Ephesians 4, we're going to get to that word, therefore. And we're going to see a shift in the book. So the next couple of weeks are going to be just, here's what's true of a Christian. Here's what's true of a Christian. Here's what's true of a Christian. We'll get to verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 and make a shift to, now here are some practical applications of these truths. All right. I want to read... <laughs> Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, so it's going to be one, two, three slides, okay? In Greek, this is all one sentence. 202 words. It's the longest run-on sentence potentially in Greek ever. It's, it's like, this is a heavy sentence, you know? There's a lot going on in here. In English, it's a couple sentences. All right. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That is one sentence in the original language. Okay. So this passage starts off with this phrase, spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in verse uh, 3. Jesus 
has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want to make sure that we understand that, that verse first, because the rest of this passage is telling us what the spiritual blessings are. Doesn't spiritual blessings sound like a Hallmark movie? You know, like spiritual blessings in heavenly places, starring Aunt Becky from Full House. You know? Well, not anymore. So, spiritual blessings in heavenly places is going, we're going to see five specific spiritual blessings, okay? This passage tells us what the spiritual blessings are. We're going to get into those. But what is a spiritual blessing? So, a spiritual blessing is different or distinct from a material blessing, all right? A material blessing might be like your house or your, your apartment. That's a blessing. Your car, your job, your paycheck, those are material blessings. Now, just because they're material blessings does not make them bad. God gives us material blessings, but they are still in a different category than a spiritual blessing. Both originate from God, but spiritual blessings are not necessarily material, and they last for eternity. Your house is not going to last for eternity. All, all your material blessings are not going to last for, for eternity. You're not going to be able to take your car with you when you die. You can't take your money with you when you die. But these spiritual blessings are originated by God. They take place in the spiritual world, and they go on for eternity. Everything we're going to read about today is forever. Okay, this, is going to, this will go with you in heaven. Uh, what also are the, the heavenly places? What are we referring to there? So in about a month, I'm going to spend an entire Sunday morning outlining the heavenly places and what that means. But today I just want to summarize it. We use terms like spiritual world or spiritual realm to refer to what Paul calls the heavenly places. Now I know sometimes Christians get a little bent out of shape because it's, that sounds kind of like New Age spirituality. Listen, the fact that they stole language from the Bible doesn't mean we can't take that language back and use it correctly. Does that make sense? So, uh, heavenly places is referring to the spiritual world or the spiritual realm. Um, we know this about the, the heavenly places. It is the spiritual realm where Christ is seated with God. And we're going to read about this phrase, heavenly places, is going to come up almost every week. So you've got to have a grasp of it. Jesus is currently in the heavenly places, seated with God. You know who else is seated with Christ in heavenly places? Us. It's, I mean, you're seated in Philadelphia right now, but in a spiritual sense, you're seated with Jesus in heaven. And we're going to have a whole week on that. Uh, the spiritual place or the heavenly place is also where angels and demons operate. Okay, and I got into this last week. There are angels, they're real. There are demons, they're real. Uh, they exist, and they interact with our world sometimes. And we can interact with theirs when we live in our authority in Jesus. So the heavenly places is not the clouds. You know, it's not Jesus up on a cloud playing a harp. It's an actual, real uh, Plane of existence, I guess is the best way to say. It's the spiritual world. It's the spiritual realm. All right, so heavenly uh, places where we receive uh, spiritual blessings. There are five spiritual blessings in this passage that we receive. The first is that God chooses us. In verses 4 through 5, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So this passage says twice in just two verses that God chose us. So here's the first spiritual blessing. God chose us. God chooses Christians. Everyone that's ever given their life to Jesus and everyone that's ever been a Christian has done that because God chose them. It says right here, just as he chose us in him, it says also he predestined us to adoption as sons. So I want to go through all this. Here's the basic concept. God chose us, and after he chose us, he began to draw us to himself. No one has ever come to Jesus cold. Everyone has been drawn some way. People always will say, here are the circumstances of my life that brought me to Jesus. There are people in your life right now, maybe you're one of them, who they're like, I don't know, I've just been thinking about God lately. I've been taking my spirituality more seriously. You know, like that, that's how God works. He picks a person and then he draws them and eventually they come to a point where they respond to God in a way that they are saved. So, uh, why did God choose anyone? And when did he choose? Well, he chose before the foundation of the world. Before the earth was created... Before there was angels, before there was demons, before there was any of that, God chose who he was going to choose. This is good news that should humble every single one of us. Because God didn't choose you after you did a few good things. He didn't choose you because like, oh, I see some real potential in this guy. There was no potential other than for sin. You were chosen before you were born, chosen before you sinned, chosen before you tithed, chosen before you did anything good. And this is, this is true to the whole biblical story. I mean, how, how is Abraham the father of the faith? God chose him. It's not because Abraham, you know, put, out, put in an application and God was like, I like your resume here, Abraham. Abraham was a pretty messed up dude, just like the rest of us. But God chose Abraham. Why? Because of the kind intention of God's will, it says. He didn't choose Abraham because of something in Abraham. He chose because of something in God. There's something in God that wants to choose people to redeem and to use. He chose Abraham. And then we go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, who we now call Israel, Jacob was a twin he had a twin brother named Esau. And before they were born, God chose Jacob, right? And he didn't choose Esau. God chose Jacob. And was it because Jacob had great potential? Nope. He was a little baby in the womb. He hadn't done anything impressive. He hadn't gotten God's attention. God chose Jacob because God chose Jacob. What about Moses? When was Moses chosen? As an in, I mean, well, he's chosen before the foundation of the world, but he was set aside from birth, right? God didn't wait until Moses had been a shepherd for 80 years and said, I really like what you're doing with these sheep here. Let's try this on people. There was nothing Moses did to win God's determination. All right? The disciples, how were the disciples called into ministry? Jesus just went up and said, come follow me. He didn't say, I see what you're doing with these fish. This is very good work. I see a lot of potential. You have leadership gifts. None of that. He just picked 12 
dirty, smelly fishermen, and he made them disciples. And the same is true of every follower of Jesus today. You have been chosen by God. And it's not because he was impressed with your spiritual life. It's not because he looked at you and said, oh, this person could be a great leader for the kingdom. He chose you because of what was in him, not because of what was in you. Do you follow that so far? So, when he chooses, when he determines, when he selects, he then draws. Now, this idea, this concept of God choosing, sometimes we take it too far. Sometimes we figure, well, God's going to pick who he's going to pick. I'm just going to chill out and let the chips fall where they may. That's called fatalism, where you're kind of just trusting that your fate, it's going to figure itself out. Listen, that is not the response that's appropriate to this. We still have personal responsibility. God still holds us responsible for how we respond to him, the decisions that we make. Uh, we still have free will. We make choices. We make decisions. The theological term for this is free agency. If you're a sports fan, you've heard that phrase many times. We still are responsible for our decisions. Even though God predetermines and pre, uh, uh, predestines us, we still have decisions to make that we're held responsible for. Does that make sense? I don't want anyone to be, get lackadaisical or passive because of this. Uh, we still have responsibilities that we have to act out, and our ma decisions still matter. So the first spiritual blessing is that we are chosen. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, you did not choose me, I chose you. And why did he choose them? To bear fruit. You have a responsibility to bear fruit. You bear fruit not by trying to bear fruit, but by abiding in Jesus. It says also in verse 5 that we are chosen to be made holy and blameless before him. In verse, sorry, verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless before him. There's a reason, there's a purpose for being predestined. And it's not so that you can sleep well at night and live a comfortable life. It's so that you can grow in holiness and bear fruit. The second spiritual blessing is in verses 6 through 8, and it's God's grace. In verse 6 it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in, a, in the beloved. So the grace, we're referring to the grace here when we say, it has been freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So God's grace is freely bestowed, meaning it, there is no cost and it is generous. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So, listen, God's not up in heaven with like one gallon of grace. And he's like, I've got to make this last. You get a drop. You get a drop. Scott, you're going to need two drops. This is, he's, he doesn't have a limited amount of grace. He has unlimited grace. You have been slathered in God's grace. He has poured it out. He's not worried about some of it spilling down over your head and running on the floor. He's lavished it on you. He's not, he's not stingy on his grace. He's generous with his grace. Now, I want to make sure we have a biblical understanding of grace because there is kind of a cheap grace idea that perpetuates uh, in churches that you can do whatever you want and then claim God's grace afterwards. That is not God's grace. 
Uh, God's grace is not you uh, getting God to turn his face away from your sin like he turns a blind eye like, <laughs> I see what you did there, grace. That is not grace. Grace is actually empowerment over sin, not an excuse for sin. If you're using grace as an excuse to sin, that is not grace. Grace is an empowerment. When the, when the New Testament in 1 Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians talks about the spiritual gifts, it uses the word grace. They call, they're called the charisma. And that word means grace. Those are all empowerments, guys. Those are all abilities that are divinely empowered. Grace is not you saying, I guess I'm going to sin forever and get Jesus to forgive me, which is true, but that's mercy. Grace is, I now have the power to defeat sin. I can now live in victory over sin. I have the grace, the empowerment to do that. The word grace actually refers to God's favor on your life. The way that you know that you are experiencing favor is when stuff just seems to come a little easier. It's almost like uh, this magnetic gravitational thing where like stuff just comes your way, you move a little quicker. And we all experience that a little bit differently because what comes hard for you might be easy for someone else and what comes easy for you might be hard for someone else. But God's grace is actually God's favor. So let me use my wife as an example because she's not here. My wife loves all, oh, she is, oh, shoot. Kara, Gordon, no, she, ah, I know, I have to use Kendra for this illustration. Okay, we have like 40 or 50 kids that come to church every single Sunday. My wife loves all of them. But there's three kids in particular that have her favor. Aiden, Emma, and Josiah. She loves all the kids, she cares for all the kids, she teaches all the kids, but there's three that have a special spot in her heart. You understand that? Okay. Same way with me. My wife has friends, she has family members that she loves and she cares for, but she has a special soft spot in her heart. Is this right? For me. Okay. I have a little extra favor with my wife than her siblings and cousins and grandparents and stuff like that, okay? You have favor with God, right? You have a soft, there's a soft spot in his heart for you. That like he loves you, he loves to hear from you, he loves to be with you. Uh, that soft spot exists and you live in the sweet spot of that. The uh, third spiritual blessing that we receive in Jesus is that we are redeemed and forgiven. This is in verse 7. It says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we have redemption and we have forgiveness. Redemption means that we have been essentially emancipated from slavery. We were slaves to sin. We couldn't even get free from it if we tried. We were just stuck in it. I mean, even in our, on our best day, we still would sin. And we, are, we were slaves to sin, not just the propensity to sin, but the punishment for sin. We were slaves to that. And Jesus paid by his blood to redeem us from that and to emancipate or deliver us from the power of sin. And we're also forgiven. Now, 
The concept of needing to be forgiven by God is falling out of favor a little bit in our culture because everyone is offended, but no one admits that they offended anyone else. I don't know who's getting their feelings hurt all the time if no one else is hurting anyone's feelings. But we all live lives to offend people, and primarily God. We offend God with our sin. We, we shake our fists in his face. We say with our decisions that we know better than him, that we have more wisdom than him. And when we do that, it is offensive to God, and it creates separation. And it earns us discipline or punishment from God. God is required because of his fairness or justice, to punish sin. I mean, if, if my kids went around hitting each other and beating each other all the time, and I never intervened, and I never stopped, and I never stepped in and said, we've got to set this straight, that would make me unfair, right? I mean, if my, it would probably be Emma beating up Aiden. Uh, every time I see Emma with her arm around Aiden's neck, I say, Emma! You gotta lift back a little more if you're gonna put him to sleep, all right? If you want him to go out, you gotta do this. So, listen, if I never step in and set things right, that makes me unfair or unjust. It is required of God's nature and character that He has to punish sin or else He's unfair. Because we all hurt each other. And God has to punish sin, but Jesus takes the punishment for us. Right? And I mean, unless you want to take that punishment and see how that goes, but it's going to be cross, it's going to be like the cross, and it's going to be eternal separation from God. So Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve, and so because of that, we can be forgiven. But we need to be forgiven. That's a hard thing sometimes for people to hear, that you're the one that needs to be forgiven. That you're not the victim, you're the sinner. And when it comes to God, we're not the victim. We're the one that has offended him and uh, encroached on his territory. We've shaken our fist in his face. So we need to be forgiven. And thankfully, in Jesus, we are. Also, God, uh, this is the fourth spiritual blessing. He reveals mysteries to us. So, verse 9, God makes known to us the mystery of his will. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 10 for the sake of time. He makes known to us the mystery of his will. What's the mystery? The summing up of all things in Christ. This is a mystery that since the beginning of the universe, God's plan has been, I'm going to sum everything up in Jesus. I'm going to put everything, I'm going to make it all Christ-centered. So this is how the world operates right now, I believe. It's just an illustration. This is kind of how the world operates. The cross obviously represents Jesus in the middle you have all these different elements and segments of society, you have philosophy, you have nature or creation, you have history, government, science, all these things that we all interact with on a daily basis. Some of them point somewhat indirectly toward Jesus. Others seem to go completely the opposite. And it's just like everything's a mess right now. There's going to come a time when God is going to sum everything up together in Christ, and the world is going to look like this. Everything's going to point to Jesus. Science is going to be viewed through a Christ-centered lens, and we're going to find Jesus in every scientific discovery. History is going to be seen through a Christ-centered lens, and we're going to see how Jesus was active in every phase of history 
to bring about redemption and reconciliation. Government. We're going to see Jesus instilling Jesus-centered government on the earth during the thousand years, the millennium. Uh, we're going to see this in individuals. We're going to see this in uh, race reconciliation. We're going to see this, even the philosophies of this world, that many of which, most of which, are not pointing toward Jesus. Every idea, every philosophy is going to point people to Jesus. Does this make sense? I'm looking forward to living, if, if I get to, during this time. Now, listen, some of these things are vaguely directed toward Jesus already. So when, when everything gets summed up and pointed back to Jesus, it's going to take little adjustments. Some of these, it's going to break people's necks, the shifts that take place. Some of these things are so far, like, not pointing to Jesus that when he shifts that arrow, it's going to, like, hurt but this is what's going to happen. He's going to sum all things up in Jesus, and it's going to result in something like that. The final thing that we, uh, the final spiritual blessing that we receive is that we receive the Holy Spirit. We are marked or sealed in the Holy Spirit. So, in him, also, you also, after listening to the message of truth, so this is after you heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is given to every Christian. Okay, You receive the Holy Spirit uh, the moment you trust Christ. After you hear the gospel and believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now it says right here, the Holy Spirit is, like, is an inheritance. So I want you to think in terms of like a down payment. The Holy Spirit is a down payment on following Jesus. Now, if you've ever sold a house, it's important for you to get the down payment, right? But would any of you ever sell a house and say, I'll just take the down payment. I don't need the full payment. I think a lot of Christians settle for the down payment. In four chapters, we're going to read this. Continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to stop after the down payment. There's more of the Holy Spirit to encounter and to live in and to know. But this, the, this, this mark or sealing moment that happens when we come to Christ, every Christian experiences this, but not every Christian is walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get that, uh, to that in a couple weeks. Now, it says that we are uh, sealed in Jesus with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay, We're sealed in Jesus with the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of like an elementary, edu- uh, elementary illustration, but this is the way I think of it. Jesus is the envelope... God slides us in Christ in the envelope and then seals it with the Holy Spirit so that we can't get out of the envelope. We're sealed in there now. We're in Jesus. If we weren't sealed, we might come out of Jesus. But we're in and we're sealed and we're safe and we're going to remain in Jesus because of the Holy Spirit's sealing activity in our lives. Um. The seal also has one more purpose, and it authenticates things. Now, this is kind of an old, you know, like, Greek thing, but when you put a seal on something, that was your way of saying, this is authentic, this is real, this is genuine. Um, I said this about two weeks ago. Listen, not everyone that says they're a Christian is authentic. And the way that you can discern that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Is there one at all? Uh, My wife and I like to do this very mean game, sometimes when we go out to eat, we try to guess who else in the restaurant is a pastor. 
Because sometimes you can tell based on how they dress. Like if they have a very bland flannel shirt and khakis, there's like you're, that's a good start already. Okay, and then uh, you know you see if, if their wife looks like she plays piano. You're really hitting it on the head there. So we we like to do that. Now we were at a restaurant about a month ago, and I was like, that guy's a pastor. It helped that there were some other people. I don't know. They all kind of look like they just came from church and. He was like really sharply dressed, and I went up to a guy in the restaurant and said, are you a pastor? He's like, I am. <sighs> so uh, we talked for a little bit, and then I brought my kids over and introduced like, this guy's a pastor too, because I wanted them to know I'm not that weird. You know, like there's other pastors. So I introduced them, like this guy's a pastor too, this is a well-dressed pastor, and this is you know, how, how they live. And, uh, but we could spot that, partly because you could you could discern that the Holy Spirit, this guy had the Holy Spirit. And uh, about two weeks ago, we had a guy come, we were doing some work in the basement of the church, and the guy that was in charge of the construction team, when he showed up, I was like, this, I think this guy's a Christian. Have you ever met someone, you're like, I think this person's a Christian. They're just, they seem like they are. What you're picking up on there is the Holy Spirit, okay? So I was like, I think this guy's a Christian, but I don't know, I mean, we're, we're at a church, and so maybe he's just acting religious or something like that so he went through and he did the job the whole day and at the end of the day they were wrapping up and we were all about to go home and we started talking about the church a little bit and he said yeah I run the men's ministry at my church and I was like yes Christian plumber fixing our basement but what that is is you're 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 discerning the sealing work of the Holy Spirit authenticating a person as a genuine believer you understand you can discern that stuff sometimes and uh, so we receive these five spiritual blessings when we come to Jesus. Number one, he chooses us. Number two, he gives us grace. Number three, he redeems and forgives us. Number four, he reveals mysteries to us. Number five, he marks or seals us with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you notice, but the entire Trinity is involved in saving us. The Father chooses us, the Son redeems us, the Holy Spirit seals and marks us. The reason for all of this, and it's clear in the passage, this all takes place to the praise of his glory. The reason God does this is to then provoke in us a response of praise. And we thank God for his glory. So I'm going to bring our worship team back up. They're going to lead us in one final song. This is our opportunity to respond to God and sing about the praise of his glory. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, a couple years, some of this stuff you might have forgotten about. Or maybe you're so familiar with it that it doesn't even move you anymore. Like, oh yeah, redeemed, forgiven. I knew that. I learned that in Sunday school when I was five. It's a really dangerous place to be when these basic ideas of the gospel become so familiar that you just, they don't move you anymore. So this is an opportunity to go back to appreciating this the way you used to appreciate it. If you haven't been walking with Jesus for a while or are not walking with Jesus at all, there is no better day than today to respond to God. If he's been drawing you, if he's been working in your life, if you've been like, I don't know, thinking about God a lot lately and I think I might check out a church, I want you to know that that's not your idea. He's planting seeds in your head and in your heart to draw you to him. And you have some responsibility on how long he's going to have to draw you or how quickly you want to respond to that. But um, 
I just want to encourage you, respond immediately by receiving God's forgiveness, receiving his redemption, and entrusting him with the lordship of your life. Would you mind standing with us? Team's going to lead us in a song. John Ayer's going to dismiss us when we're done. Lord, you've done all of these things in the life of every believer, even if we didn't know that you did them. Even if we don't feel like you've done them, your word tells us that you did. So I pray that our personal firsthand experience of you would meet your word. That we would not lower your word to our experience, but that we would raise our experience to your word. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.